these are the words of Lynn Twist in her book, The Soul of Money. I have been deeply engaged in many cultures in a way that has enabled me to see the striking commonalities in our basic human relationship with money and the way that relationship governs, dominates, and stresses our lives. I've become aware of powerful, unexamined assumptions about money and life that hold us back, wear us out, or distort our most basic perception of the world and of one another. But I've also witnessed the immense healing power of even the smallest amount of money when we use it to express our humanity, our highest ideals, and our most soulful commitments and values. We can write our relationship with money, realign it to transform the world around us and create conditions for unparalleled, sustainable prosperity and well-being. It was in 1985 that Clark and I moved to Boston so that I could begin nursing school. And we had no savings at the time, no careers. So in order to live in that very expensive city, we moved into a tiny apartment complex where Clark would work supervising folk with mental health diagnoses who lived in the other apartments in the building. The kitchen in our apartment was so small that we couldn't get a chair or a table into the kitchen. And the living room had room only for a sofa and a desk. Our bedroom barely fit the double-sized so, double bed that we had. And that was all the space. After the first year of nursing school, I traveled to Mexico to learn Spanish and somehow joined up with a group of people who were traveling from northern Minnesota who were learning both Spanish and liberation theology. Now, I had a little knowledge about liberation theology at the time, primarily from Gustav Gutierrez's book, They Drink From Their Own Wells. And one of the primary tenets is that God demands a preferential treatment for the poor above all others. In Cuernavaca, we studied Spanish in the morning, and then we traveled all over the place in the afternoons to meet people who were part of the liberation theology movement. The first week, we went to the train depot in town. There were and there still are hundreds of people who live in the depot between the railroad tracks, lining up for a single water spigot that is turned on once a day. 
I was invited to meet Jose Maria and Sabina, who lived in a one-room habitat they had made out of cardboard boxes that they had scrounged from the local vegetable market. They shared this room with their two small children and Sabina's sister, brother-in-law, and their child. I joined them sitting on a stone in front of their small room, sitting around a fire pit where they heated food and water. And as we talked for a while, Sabina finally turned to me and she asked me, so what is your home like? I can hardly find the words to describe the tiny home I complained about while sitting in front of her crowded cardboard room. I finally said something inane, something like, well, I, I have an oven inside my house. And she was dismayed that I would have to constantly pay for gas to cook my food and heat my water. It was very humbling. It was a humbling lesson to know my poor living situation seemed like a luxury to her, something she could not even imagine. Later on in that month, we met with some Catholic priests. They talked with us about the economic situation in Mexico and how the United States businesses had co-opted the economy so that all the newly found oil reserves, which were robust at the time, did nothing but pay off the interest of the IMF loans to Mexico. The country was so impoverished that the government couldn't get ahead of the debt that they owed and could not provide any services to the folk mired in poverty in their country. After the formal talk with the priests, one of the men in my group asked, what is it we can do to stop this? How can we help? And there was a silence for a long time. And then one of the priests answered, that as long as we lived in the United States and as long as we had money invested in the US economy, we were part of the system of oppressing the rest of the world. He said there was no hope for us unless we gave up all our wealth and moved to another country. And then he recited the Christian Testament parable spoken by Jesus. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. me. Truly, I say to you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. We live in a culture that requires money to survive and to be content with our lives. And we live in Kirkland, in the Kirkland community that is wealthier than many. I would guess many of us here have sizable investments and we rely on these for our security and for our retirement. I actually don't think it's realistic to follow the instructions of the priest to rid myself of wealth, myself of wealth and to move to another country. Yet at the same time, I see the message. While I am committed to justice work, to this process of healing our world, can I honestly do this work while I live in comfort with my savings? I've pondered this over the last 40 years. On the one hand, there is an economic reality that I have to earn enough pay for housing. 
and save money to live after I stop earning money. And on the other hand, I have a sense of guilt or complicity. Complicity. I'm complicit. <laughs> what is this about? I live in a tension between that, the fear of financial insecurity and a sense of guilt, which is at least in part brought on by my Protestant upbringing, that there's a bit of shame around acquiring and accumulating money. And it's not just me. This is a cultural duality that we have about money. We do not ask people what they earn. We don't talk about how much we have in savings. There's an embarrassment if we have accumulated credit card debt. We don't talk openly about money. This is considered a very private topic. But I would like to find a way to reclaim my relationship with money. Instead of having my finances be a taboo subject, how might I create a relationship and dialogue about my wealth that is healthier? The topic of money is pertinent to this Sunday, perhaps more than any other Sunday of the year. Today is wedged between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, the two biggest spending days of the year. And this is followed immediately by Giving Tuesday. There's a bit of a money frenzy as we're bombarded with messages about spending and giving money right now. And both these topics need our attention. What is our religious message about spending? Do we buy from ethical companies, from places that offer fair compensation? And how much stuff do we need or want to buy and accumulate? And what is our message about giving? What percentage of our income do we give? And how do we decide what groups best promote our values in the world? And another whole focus is about how we save. Where do we invest the money that we have? This past sun, summer, I was at a protest with 350.org down at the Chase Bank. We were urging Chase to divest their money away from the fossil fuel industry. During one of the presentations, the speaker began to list all the other banks and insurance companies that were making huge profits from gas and oil, and so driving the investments into the pipelines that threatened water supplies. I realized they were naming companies that I thought I might have investments in. I wasn't sure though, because I had kept a distance from my IRA and my retirement accounts. So I looked into these a bit and I found I had stock in some of the companies that made profits from the fossil fuel industry and also in some companies that made profits from the immigration detention centers along the Mexican border, places Clark and I have spent time and money opposing. How ironic is that? My money was being used to fund projects that I am in vocal opposition to. And this started me on an exploration of looking into my investments into the whole area of social responsible investing or SRI. SRI offers a way to invest money that is more in alignment with my values. I can identify those issues that most concern me. And right now, that's climate change, first and foremost, followed by the ethical treatment of all people. And after I do that, I can identify which companies I can invest in with a clearer conscience. There are four strategies in this type of investing. 
I can invest money from companies that my values are not in alignment. I can divest my money from companies that my values are not in alignment with. I can invest in companies I am in alignment with. I can work with others to invest in companies and gain enough stockholder support that we together can sway that company's how it operates. And I can move my banking and credit cards away from the large mega banks to community banks and credit unions that invest in the local community and support small businesses. Perhaps we can look at how we spend, give, and invest our money in ways that are affirming and honest. The story of the wealthy person not being able to pass into heaven is it interpreted by some, such as my Catholic priest, to mean that we cannot be saved, that we are caught in a system of exploitation, that there is no hope for us. But I don't have this, this theology of salvation. I don't believe in an afterlife for I might go to heaven or to hell. My theology is grounded in the belief that I am already on sacred ground. And my work in this life is to live accordingly. The task before me is to use what I have to heal this world. And so this includes the task of using all my resources, my money to the greatest good. How do I spend? How do I give? And how do I invest? Instead of facing money with a bit of shame and anxiety, could we all embrace what we have and use it to change the world? Investing in what might heal and restore this planet? There's a big responsibility that comes along with the freedom that our money gives us. This is the responsibility to be fully engaged in how we impact the people and countries of the world. It requires diligence, but it may have be more important than the letters we, we write or the protests we participate in. Everything we do, can become a spiritual practice. And by this, I mean, we can identify our deepest connections and live according to how our spirit leads us if we do things with intention and deliberation. Our practices around spending, giving and investing can become spiritual practices when we commit to them with full awareness. I want to end with this from the Sufi poet, Hezret in Yakan offering this perspective. I asked for strength and God gave me difficulties to make me strong. I asked for wisdom and God gave me problems to learn to solve. I asked for prosperity and God gave me a brain and brawn to work. I asked for courage and God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love, and God gave me people to help. I asked for favors, and God gave me opportunities. I received nothing I wanted. I received everything I needed. Blessed be.